Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, occasional filmmaker, occasional podcast guy, full-time father. And joining us tonight, he is the director of the films Jugface and Dementor. It's Chad Kinkle. Chad, good evening. Thanks. Yeah, It's great to be here. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Much appreciated. Yeah, I'm, I'm always up to talk about uh, movies that people don't like or, or think are bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a hell of a choice you have come to us with this week. Um, you did you had a couple of great selections, but yeah, The Unnameable is what we've gone for from 1988. So why this one? Uh, you know, I have like a funny uh, memory of this movie. It, it was probably the early 90s, and I'm sitting in... Uh, with my best friends, two of them. And uh, the one guy, his name's Danny, who actually uh, uh, provided the houses that I, I shot in for Dementor, just uh, oh, you know, my newest oh, cool. film. Yeah, the really creepy haunted house looking, you know, he owns a bunch of uh, slums. So we call him kind of a slum lord, but uh, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's, he's the, per- the perfect source for haunted houses. Big but love uh, to Danny uh, the slum lord. Yeah, <laughs> but we, uh, yeah, we were just watching it. I, you know, it's on V, I'm pretty sure we'd rented it on VHS and, uh, we're watching it. And Danny's like this really big guy, and like he played um, like American football in high school and then in college. So just a big guy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he looks like a giant Viking, you know, and, uh, he, but he has this problem where he's always mm-hmm. falling asleep. Like at night, he can never stay awake through any movie we've ever watched, or just even being up late, like gaming or playing Dungeons and Dragons, like which we still do now. Mm-hmm. He he has a hard time staying awake. So anyway, he's in the chair, this recliner. Another friend of mine, Eric, is sitting on the floor, and I think it, I think when I rewatched it, it didn't have the same effect on me because I think I was watching it, you know, with a nice stereo, where this was just coming out of a mono, you know television with its own little crappy speakers but the first time the creature shrieks really loud like in the hallway i think it was so startling that i i remember just being startled by it but danny woke up and screamed like you know a tiny child you know a little little girl and it was it was like you know we we had never heard him make a noise ever like that i mean he looks like somebody that eats babies you know for fun <laughs> you know not not somebody that would scream like a little bitty girl and uh so anyway and we just i remember just laughing rolling around the floor laughing so hard at his reaction so it's just kind of one of those movies that i liked and it but i didn't think it was great but it just stuck in my mind and mm-hmm. i've always wanted to, to go back and watch it but i don't think it's been available on a disc you know mm-hmm. Till maybe the past you know year or two, and uh, so I bought that 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 disc. It was funny. Oh, sure. Okay, cool. Um, uh, so had you revisited it at all between now and when you watched it for this? 
Yeah, I had never seen it again, but it, but it just stuck with me though, which, which was kind of crazy. I mean, I love the effects, the the, the creature yeah. effects, uh, and you know that stuck with me too. So yeah, it just stayed with me since the early '90s, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, for for a single watch, that's pretty good going, I would say. Yeah. Um, Andy. Yeah. What is your background with the unnameable? I'm going to tell you, Mitch. Uh, rare occurrence here. This was a first watch for me. Ah, okay, okay. Um, Chad, for reference, almost everything that we talk about on this show is a first watch for me. Almost nothing is for Andy. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> we're from very different ends of the spectrum in that way. Um, it was, of course, a first watch for me, but yeah, it's um, a little bit of a badge of honor if you pick something that's a first watch for Andy. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to say that I, I, there was some kind of education involved, but in my kind of growing up years but to be honest i just didn't like weather so i didn't like being outside i didn't like inclement weather of any sort be it hot or cold so i just kind of hid away as a kind of long-haired teenage goth and just watched everything everything (laughs) uh, yeah it's nice when someone picks something particularly something that most people might think is relatively kind of grubby or most people don't really like that's the stuff i like and that's the stuff i'm kind of drawn to so it's it's cool to to, to have this in front of me and Lovecraftian stuff I'm kind of a big fan of so I'm surprised I'd never seen this one Chad I don't know if you've listened to the show before or not but before we get into the main kind of meat of the conversation there is something that we tend to make people do um, which will be in this case for the benefit of anyone who is listening that hasn't seen The Unnameable now what we do generally here is Andy puts 30 seconds on the clock I will count you in and we'll be looking for you to give us your best 30 second synopsis of The Unnameable how are you feeling about this as a job Let's do it. Oh, okay. Confidence. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> we set to go, Andy? Uh, absolutely, Mitch, yes. All right. Three, two, one. Synopsisize. Damn. I'm blanking. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, The Enable is a story about uh, these uh, teenagers that are, are in college co-eds who mistakenly go into a haunted house where a creature has been living for, it seems like, hundreds of years and the uh trapped by a magical spell and they awaken it and uh yeah i, I <laughs> Time. Just, yeah i mean I, I, like, I, like there's not a great amount more to say until unless you actually like stopping short and just dragging it over the finish line yeah right like, right i think you've yeah. had everything that really needs to be said there about the kind of key plot to the unnameable yeah have you um have you ever have you read the story no i haven't so it's I, I don't imagine there's many similarities beyond the kind of creature in a house stuff. I'd say there's probably, knowing Lovecraft's work, I'd say there's probably more in common with an opening than there is with the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, actually, that that's pretty close. Uh, the actual story... Yeah, the movie opens with the uh, the guy Carter and the and I guess the two other students and they're and the Carter is like a writer and they're they're sitting out there and he's telling them the story about you know what had happened in this house that he knew about you know and this this image of a creature in the glass and then it turns out they're sitting in front of the house. Mm-hmm. Well, the story is exactly that, it, but it's only two of them. Right. And they're sitting there, and he and it, he goes through the same kind of telling of the story and how it's part of his family's history and all this stuff. And then they're attacked outside, and then they wake up in a hospital at the end. Right, okay. So the only difference really is, is that this one becomes this, like, classic, you know, 
80s horror movie with teens going into the house and you know you need a scene with uh boobs basically worked in there somehow so it's of course it's going to be these these uh college kids that are you know trying to hook up in this house Mm -hmm. i don't know if anyone did any digging into the director of this but i did i had a look at the stuff he's done before i hadn't done massively much in terms of directing before or after this except for the sequel to this, which I, I haven't seen and would quite like to. But I noticed that he was a second unit director on The Terminator and the script supervisor on Roar, you know, the mad film with Tippi Hedren with all the lions in the house? Yes, I've seen that. That's that's a crazy movie. That was a wild, wild time. But uh, yeah, it's, it's weird that, he's, that he worked on those two things and then made this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's probably just a you know Lovecraft fan. And then uh, I tried to watch some of the... Um, the 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 disc extras right. but there, there wasn't anything with the uh director it was just more the actors and the special effects people right okay okay something of an enigmatic figure <laughs> oh. yeah yeah but yeah like um like you say i mean like the kind of framing device of this or kind of ultimately the main story of it is um randolph carter like you say and his friends howard and joel yeah who would meet after this kind of uh, i was gonna say pre-credits i guess it's not but like we kind of see this house in the 18th century i believe Right, yeah. Um, this must have annoyed you, Mitch, where we have this scene that's kind of set in the olden days and then it jumps forward into what we can, like, inverted commas, modern times, but it doesn't give you a clearly delineated <laughs> yeah. chronology. He's using, yeah, he's using if... candles, so I guess that's your big clue, and he wears that kind of flopped-over hat. That's right. That's I don't like, know if this translated to America, but I, I don't know if it's something you have there, maybe you have someone similar. But in the UK, we have a kind of nursery rhyme called Wee Willy Winky. <laughs> I've never heard of this. Where, where's this going? Okay. Yeah. That guy at the start is dressed exactly like Wee Willy Winky. Like, because right. at first I was like, oh, he's got his little, he's got his little nightcap on and his little, his little nightdress. And then he whipped out one of those candles in a candle holder. And Mitch, you know who Wee Willy Winky is. Kinda, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like you're more conversant with the lore than I am. It's not really lore. He's, he runs upstairs <laughs> and downstairs in his nightgown. That's pretty much the entire story of it. That's pretty much the entire nursery rhyme. I think he knocks on people's doors or something weird as well. So, um, um, But yeah, he, he brought to mind Wee Willy Winky. Listeners, please get in touch. Tell me I'm not crazy and that Wee Willy Winky actually exists. Well, one not, thing I'm not guess- that he exists because he doesn't. One thing I'm guessing that he doesn't do in the nursery rhyme is um, reassure an unseen howling entity that the outside storm is nothing to worry about. I really like this as an opening. I think it's really cool. I think it kind of like, um, considering how abruptly it kind of dives into the modern time stuff, I think that as a scene setting for the kind of big bad in this, I think this works really nicely. Yeah. And what was weird is, well, not weird, but, you know, they were using all that kind of first person POV of the monster. And I had this like shocking, like, revelation i was like oh my god i copied this for jug face like sometimes i'll watch movies again and be like did i steal that did i just not remember that and i used it later i mean i've seen other movies with you know pov of the mm. monster or killer but uh it struck me i was like oh crap like i don't remember this being an influence but maybe it was you mentioned it earlier, Chad, but uh, this is kind of the first time we hear the creature screeching, and it's kind of so pervasive in this opening scene, and then kind of once we come back to the house later on, it's entirely unsettling, like, and really quite horrible. Yeah, and it's very quiet. They do a really long build-up, too, when the teens get in there, until you first see it and then hear it, 
And I think, you know, I've seen people comment that they didn't like that, but I thought that was really cool because it really sets up to be, you know, more effective. And I almost wish they didn't show as much in the beginning mm-hmm. and yeah. just uh, a kind of, you know, hit you with it uh, later in the story. Yeah, because, I mean, that is a strange choice in as much as it then goes on to show you almost nothing of... It's a Lida, isn't it? A Lida? The monster. Oh, I don't know. I, don't I, I didn't realize it had a name. Unless... Are you no, in, it's are you it's unnameable. That from the painting? Yeah. <laughs> That's clearly the unnameable. <laughs> where, uh, where, this, am I, where am I pulling this from? Then? The okay, arrogance of you, Mitch Bain, to go ahead and name the unnameable. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, in the story, in the actual uh, story by Lovecraft, it's much more. It has like yeah, the the hoofs and uh, it has horns. Mm-hmm. But it's also like you know gaseous. It doesn't have like a specific form. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now, Mitch, I think what you've done there is you saw this old guy talking to a painting of an old lady uh, who I think was maybe a wife, a mother, or something like that, and yeah. you have conflated that character to becoming the unnameable. I want to go on record and say that later on, not to spoil this too much, when the tree intervenes, the voice is shouting the name Elida. Oh, right, it's okay. like it's like um uh, it's like a demon daughter. Yeah, that's, that's, that's like what I was about that. to say. I thought it was a daughter that was the creature, not the wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Um... Some key stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> it's unclear. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, like I think that the actual the actual scene where he kind of like lets it out, which feels like a gamble under the circumstances, and gets mauled to death, is like really. Which I, I like I say, I think that in terms of setting the tone of it, or at least kind of grounding you in the story of it, I think it's really cool. Yeah. yeah, and then I'd get off the back of this murder, we have the, the pious men of the church turning up. I guess they, they kind of deem this house now befouled and decree it should be closed down and locked up for eternity and no one should ever cross it again. By the way, Mr. Kraft, this kind of lead religious guy that comes in here, I don't really take him at his word because he's wearing leather trousers. Is that is that just a rule for life? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's just something. That if I went to, I mean, I'm not a religious person, but if I went to church and the, the minister or the priest had leather trousers on, I, I think I would be inclined to take them less seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, I mean, it's kind of like pioneer times or not even that uh, pilgrim times. Uh, so I don't know. Chad, I wasn't stri- I wasn't. I wasn't had- as worried. I wasn't as worried about the trousers. Uh, everyone yeah, else had sensible <laughs> sackcloth trousers on he was making the money man he's probably collecting taxes and you know tithes or whatever so <laughs> absolutely yeah. Well, yeah look like that was fancy then <laughs> but uh yeah he basically orders um the, the house to be kind of like sealed for good and then right. for uh, for joshua the kind of the guy that we see getting killed at the start to be uh to be buried outside and yeah at that point we kind of meet our, some of our main players so we've got randolph carter and howard and joel now mm. Interesting band of protagonists here. I think that Randolph as what as kind of like a de facto lead is a really interesting choice. I would like you to refer to him as Carter because I think he's referred to as Carter pretty much yeah, the entire I, way through the film. Okay, happy with that. He, he's supposed to be uh, in the actual story. He's just Carter, but they changed it to Randolph Carter for the movie. Weird. Which is a different character in some of Lovecraft stories. Right. Oh, I see. And, and, okay. And Carter is, I think. I think Randolph Carter is also supposed to be kind of like an alt personality of Lovecraft, but definitely Carter in the original story is seeming like Lovecraft wrote himself into the right. story. Um, also, here, by the way, are kind of two main protagonists out of this group of three will be Carter and Howard. 
Now, Howard Carter was the guy who uncovered Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922, and I don't think that that's a coincidence, that that's what kind of two main characters are called here. Oh, wow. Look at that. That's cool. That's a good fact. Yeah. But yeah, we kind of join what's effectively Carter. I'm going to, I have written Randolph all the way through my notes, so I'm 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 (laughs) going to do my best here, but... um, yeah, he's kind of like telling the story, like you said, Chad, of like the of the um, of the opening, and he basically says that some of the people that were affected by it were uh, people in his uh, in his family, kind of his ancestors. Mm-hmm. Everyone is naturally skeptical of this, although I think it's funny that Jewel doesn't just like have a dig at him for telling him like telling a story that he doesn't believe to be true. He then also just gets like torn into him for being a terrible academic and a terrible horror writer as well. Well, he's the Scully here. He's a he's a chief skeptic. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose that that's true. Although I, I think that like no, like nobody's really giving it the time of day at this point. But it's Joel that kind of calls his bluff and says that they're going to stay there for the night. He's a man of science. He believes that none of this could possibly be true because you have to put your faith in the teachings of science before you ever put your faith in myth or anything like that. Essentially, uh, myth versus science at this point, and uh, he both truly believes that there's nothing in this world that can't be explained, nothing that's unnameable, so to prove it, he's going to stay in this house, which is a bad idea. Well, and that's kind of a weird plot thing to happen, where one of the characters just splits off from the other two in the very beginning. And, you know, he, he, he I guess the fact that he's dead later sends them back to look for him, or he's missing. Yeah. But I... I think you could have probably done the whole thing of having the the other the girls go out there, and the jock guys, and maybe with uh, that guy still alive. Like it was really strange to start off where he's like, "I'm just staying in this house. I I don't believe it to be true," and and he's just left there. It's like a college person scenario. It mm. seems very odd. I suppose it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, like. And I'll kind of I'll kind of address this as it goes on, but it tracks for Randolph to not be up for this. Uh, Carter, sorry, to not be up yeah. for this because he's basically because because he's telling this as being like, oh, this is a this is like cut from my family history. This is like like this is a real thing that happened. And the guy's like, oh, do you want to go and spend the night in this house? And he's like, of course not. I just told you a terrifying thing. Right. Um, however, I think that later on, as it goes on, he kind of toggles between being a believer and a skeptic a little bit. I don't really get that so much. I feel like the minute he gets to the house later, he's he's in wannabe magician mode. Yeah, he's somehow outside of the realm of like normal person in the story. Yeah. You know, it's he's almost like the narrator that just happens to be in the story to coax the other characters into doing things. Yeah, actually, and I don't know. He has very little when they get to the house. He has very little bearing on what happens. Like he kind of plants up at this table and does a power of study and while his poor pal his, his poor mate Howard he literally runs from room to room screaming trying to save everyone right exactly and it's that, that's why it's such a weird character you know to have in this story you're right and in fact like I mean it's it's quite a it's it's quite a good way of putting it that he functions more as a narrator that just so happens to actually be in the room because I remember thinking as it goes on when he was kind of like, like when everybody was getting killed upstairs and he was sitting downstairs in the kind of like living room, if you like reading aloud from these books. And I'm thinking, I was like, a lot of people are dying on his watch. Right, yeah. A couple of other characters introduced here, Wendy and Tanya. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one of the things about this film, certainly upon watching it now, that struck me that maybe wouldn't fly today, is the relationship between Wendy and Howard. Oh, um, he's a stalker or whatever. 
Yeah, he, he's this kind of, or it certainly seems from her perspective that he's this kind of incel character who keeps phoning her, keeps badgering her, won't leave her alone. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't feel that that part has aged particularly well. Um, despite his protestations i don't know it's like i i think that um it seems like they've had like this very it seems like howard and wendy have had this like very brief kind of like dalliance she says that they dance to one song and then he's just like way more into it than she is and she's just trying to like it sounds like i think that this i think that when he follows her outside and they have this conversation i think that they do this bit quite well because you can kind of tell that she's been kind of trying to gently rebuff him for a while Mm mm-hmm and the way that she's basically just like, you are far more into this than I am. Please leave me alone. Is like, I think that I, I think that it actually like I, I think that it's quite good because I think that it sounds like Howard has got a, a wrong read on the situation and is now being kind of put in his place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he reacts later. You can tell that he still, you know, really likes her, but he's never um, more than more than just interested. I guess you know, even though she's not interested in him, so. Yeah, I, th- I think that, like, in terms of, like, what his behavior is uh, after this, I think that he gets the message in this yeah. in this yeah. moment. I would also I would say, say, actually, later in the film, it's Tanya who has more to worry about. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Joel, though, at this point, who has gone to the house by himself and he's having to wander around, not for long. No, I've got to say as well at this point, Joel goes to this house to spend the night, doesn't take a torch and decides to rely on candlelight. Everyone else who comes after him brings a torch and it it works to all their benefit. It becomes a weapon later on. It's The torch is what you want in this situation. The candle, to me, is the least one of the least practical light sources you can have. It's like when you watch a film and someone guides their way through the darkness with a lighter. Like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's the worst. Yeah, and the <laughs> fact that he found them in the house is is so random as well i mean he just went into a dark house with no electricity for hundreds of years and was like i'm cool with the darkness here oh no but here's a candle i don't even recall seeing him with a bag or a sleeping bag or no no he had nothing he just stood up from their little chat in the cemetery (laughs) and was like i'm staying here okay but yeah, but like he he is killed at this point. He goes up to the attic unwisely, opens the door, awake, um, and is killed off camera. Well, kind of off camera. He's massively chill for the whole time though. Like there's figures moving through shadows, there's bumping, there's screaming, and he doesn't really seem bothered until the point of his death. Because he didn't believe, I guess. Was I was the- he? What's it? Was it his kill that it was just a, sh- a shot of his face and yeah. blood squirting on it? Yeah. See, I had another moment where uh, I thought, oh, man, I ripped off this shot because <laughs> in Jugface, uh, Larry Fesden's character, uh, when he's killed, it's just the face and blood kind of shooting up. I, I guess it's kind of a, used a lot in horror movies when you're trying to convey something but can't show everything. But I was I had that, that sickening feeling again, like, oh, no. It's, it's it's kind of interesting that watching this for the first time in like 20 years or whatever that uh, you're spotting these kinds of cues though. Like I think yeah. it says a lot for how much that film might have stuck around in your subconscious for more than you realize. Yeah. Also, oh yeah, for sure. I love the comedy, uh-oh, before he dies. <laughs> <laughs> so Howard goes back to um, uh, Carter with this at this point and he's like, I am very worried about our friend Joel. He has been worried, he, he's been missing since the night before. And Carter's very much at this point like, ah, no, fuck him. It'll be a prank. He's like messing with us. Right. And that was what it, and this is where it, like, I kind of wondered about where he sits on the spectrum of how much of this he actually believes. I think it was a a plot device 
that they didn't need to go out there yet. They needed to come after the girls and the jock guys. So I think that interaction was just this get, let you know that they're thinking about going out there, but not, they're not going yet. Yeah, so he kind of like so he kind of like main maintains this kind of like relatively high baseline of skepticism until it's like narratively convenient for him to do something else. Right, right. Yeah. Also, I found something quite triggering in this scene as well. There's the bit where um, Howard's like tapping on the table, and the woman at the table next to him's like going to fucking going to stop that. <laughs> yeah. Because because I do that. Right? I'm really aware that I do it. I tap constantly. I'm just a really fidgety person. Um, and I remember going out at my day job one day, like when we were allowed to actually be in an office with other people, um, going in and it was like, the, it was like a Monday and we had like this kind of team meeting thing and, um, like the team meeting began and everyone's eyes just turned to me and they were like, we want to talk to you Andy, like, like it was some kind of fucking intervention and they were, they were all like, you need to fucking stop tapping your feet. Like there was like 12 sets of accusatory eyes on me, like demanding <laughs> that I stop tapping. So when he was getting into trouble there, I was like, oh, I feel you. I, I get that. I get that too with my wife. Like I'm always like uh, making my knee bob up and down like crazy. <laughs> I just have this nervous energy, I guess. And uh, she's always just saying, Chad, like, and looking at me. I'm like, what? I think She's like, stop doing it. I'm like, do what? I mean, I can't. Yeah. I'm <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. If, like, for the past year now, me and my wife have shared an office in the house. And so she has to put up with all the all the fidgeting, nail-biting, tapping pens on desks, clicking pens. Like, I'm amazed she hasn't stuck one of the pens in my, in my fucking neck. <laughs> so we kind of get the basic, like, our two, our two kind of groups form at this point, in that we meet John and Bruce, who are two kind of, like, what kind of university slash kind of college cliche box do we put these two in? I think you kind of need to go with a preppy jock. Yeah. I mean, they're more... Yeah, well, they, they, the captain of the row team was one of the guys, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. which is very appropriate. It seemed to be like that. The other guy could, like, lacrosse, could probably pa- pass off as a lacrosse player. Yeah, it's that jump around the shoulders thing. Like, whatever whatever that makes you is what Yeah, yeah. yeah. super prep, 80s, cool kid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's also, like, a, a to me, a, a tennis sort of reference for some reason in my I, brain I, th- I think like yeah I, I, whenever i see people kind of like of this age wearing stuff like this and films like this i'm kind of like yeah it's like it's like in 10 or 15 years they'll be wearing that exact same thing at a country club yeah 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 fair. like that that kind of energy but um they basically they approach uh wendy and tanya and basically say that if they're going to pledge to a, sor- a sorority then it's possible that part of the kind of like hazing will be going to this this house so they're like let's go there you can get the jump on it we can go explore etc right Yes, that's right. Yeah, they, they want to get the lay of the land so that uh, ultimately there's no surprises when it comes to kind of hazing in new pledges or whatever the whatever the game is. Yeah, yeah. So, like you say, Chad, yeah, it's kind of like it's set up that they'll go there first, and they do arrive there, but kind of almost straight away. Um, I quite like the fact that um, the you know there's a point where where these two guys, Bruce and John, are waiting for Wendy and Tanya to arrive, and um, Bruce is kind of talking about getting get kind of like getting the women scared so they can get kind of like closer and cozier kind of thing and at one point he says if you get someone scared enough they'll do anything and i was like oh that's a fucking weird thing to say and the minute i said that john's like that psychology is fucked up and it's like yes it is i'm really glad someone said that yeah it is i, I don't know if that would work either i mean it seems to be the opposite strategy i, I would ever take to you know try to make out with someone it wouldn't be uh 
scare the hell out of them first. No, no, I don't think that cultivating a climate of fear is necessarily yeah. uh, the smoothest <laughs> move in the world. <laughs> um, but yeah, when they get there, of course, there's evidence that somebody's been there relatively recently. They find Joel's um, sneaker tracks. Yeah, which they see with their torches. Because they've planned ahead, right? What's funny about that—that that, uh, the set of the house, which kind of drove me crazy watching it—is that the floors are all slick concrete, and it's you know it's clearly a set, and it's not like an old house that would have wooden floors. It just kind of drove me crazy. Yeah, it's like a big soundstage, clearly. Yeah, just like yeah. Re- it's probably like only like two rooms, and they're just constantly redressing the same two rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, a comment made at some point because of the sneaker tracks on the floor that maybe somebody lives here. And I was like, really? <laughs> Who the fuck lives here? Look at the state of it. Like, every surface is three inches deep with dust and mold and, like, there's cobwebs so thick that a character literally has to crawl through them as if she's crawling through, like, a really I mean, maybe ass. a squatter of type person, a homeless person or squatter person or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's then, that's yeah. about, the, that's about yeah. the only way that it's, tracks. I think. It's still a stretch, for sure, because it's in the middle of, no, no, of nowhere. I mean, it's not like, you know, you why would you go out there? Squatters have got some kind of standards. Like, you would, you would give a surface a wipe. Some kind of place that would you could you know pirate uh, electricity from or whatever, not like in the middle of no- nowhere. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, but at this point, like I say, well, like, like kind of while this initial exploration of the house is happening, uh, at this point, uh, Carter is spoken round and decides that it is time to go and investigate um, what's going on with Joel. So that's you know, kind of like I guess it kind of sets the wheels in motion for um, these groups kind of crossing when. Tanya, Wendy, and John and Bruce go exploring. We kind of have this, like, not super long, but, like, a reasonably protracted part where people are kind of, like, skulking around with torches. At this point, I noticed that we are halfway through this thing. Yeah, it doesn't mm-hmm. really mess about. And, 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 like, to its infinite credit, because I think that, like, the setup moves at a clip because it's got these kind of two groups to establish and then puts them at the purposes where they're going to meet. Um, and then when it ge- and then it shifts gears really abruptly, and that half really works. But like, um, but yeah, I think that in terms of like getting to where it needs to go, it does quite a lot of work in a way that doesn't really feel like it drags its heels. No, no, not at all. I mean, they they do do that walking around, and this kind of starts like probably my favorite part of the movie, and it's not because anything really happens in it; it's because of the way the space uh, in the house becomes so abstract. Because it's like you have no idea where they're at in the house as they're walking around because it's just it's just like hallway after hallway, room after room. The rooms seem to have multiple ways in and out, but sometimes they're blocked and sometimes they're not. And just like in my mind, I love that. Like it made me think, oh, I, I mean, I've always wanted to do kind of like a big haunted house kind of story or movie. And but one that that had many sort of like secret passages and stuff, even though there was no secret passage, or there was actually in this movie, but it was more just, it became abstract somehow and you would get lost in it, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's actually a moment, I think, when, I think, I, I can't remember if it's the whole group or one of the kind of splinter groups, enters a room. And I think one of the characters says she's amazed at how big and, I guess this chamber or this room is. I mean, I, I kind of like the idea as well that maybe the house had like this kind of wall shifting personality almost of its own. Yeah, it's around now that Wendy and John kind of find a quiet room to 
get it on. Who picks now to start asking questions about sororities? Get it on, Mitch. Really? I'm gonna say get it on. I never know how to say that. But I, I, I like I always, I always, I always get my, I always get my wink, wink euphemism wrong. Um, but yeah, um, uh, the mood is interrupted because she uh, leans on a bloodied human bone. That's right. And to be honest, none of this really rings true to me anyway because I don't imagine guys at uni to be this slow and sensual in their advances. Like this is like this is like erotic thriller levels of seduction that's going on here and I I don't know I just feel like these guys would be very much the kind of guys that would advocate for an Eiffel Tower um, do you th- do you think that this was like a kind of smokiness that would go on to be a staple of 90s thrillers as opposed to being like kind of like ham-fisted fragments yeah, I do I feel I like the, yeah. the reality would be far more fingers and thumbs than this smooth operator um, <laughs> in fact I, mean, I feel like the reality would be more like what's happening in the other room yeah I, I think I agree with that for sure. But that was their one scene that uh, that maybe maybe the funding that they got from the movie was like based on that, and they're like, yeah. "You need to drag this out a little bit so that we can sell it." I mean that. I mean that is that, that is potentially true because, in fairness, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that that's the this is the only nudity in the whole thing. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, like it's it's quite possible. I mean, like I mean, like I still one hundred percent take your point, Andy. I think that like the fact that he like is this incredibly smooth talking with Thaddeo in this moment doesn't really kind of clangs a little bit. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think it is quite possible that that's why it's there. And I can only um, imagine that a chewed up head would ruin most fucks. So <laughs> it, 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 that kind of tracks as well that that would bring things to a grinding conclusion. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the bone would be bad enough uh, with the bloody bone that you're accidentally <laughs> laying on. Uh, you know, that's probably the most accurate to how I imagine a college guy would react. He'd be like, "That's ah, just a bone. Let's fuck." Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> like, right. If, if it's yeah. a head, that's more. I guess there's more personality in a head. It's harder to argue with. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like, oh, this this bone appears to have fresh blood on it. It's like, ah, oh, it's probably a raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> John dies around this time. He has his throat ripped out. That's or right. kind of like is heavily mauled about the throat. Tanya inquires upon discovering the body, is he alright? Uh, smart money's on no. Sure. Right. But yeah, at this point it's like it's like a like it's a very abrupt turn into kind of like absolute chaos for a little while that I think lands quite nicely. But it's like you say, and it's very much triggered by um the discovery of the head. Yeah, that's right. It's uh Thingy's head. What's his name? Joel. Joel, the very same, the guy who went missing at the start. Yeah. But we do get our first very, very brief glimpse of the unnameable itself here. And it's so tantalisingly brief that you really don't have time to pick up on any of the detail in it, but it's enough to make you go, oh, that's interesting looking. For sure. Yeah, I think that it's interesting, and we spoke about it, we touched on it briefly earlier. You were saying that like, um, it's sh- like the film shows a surprising amount of the unnameable early on given that for the rest of the film the build to the reveal was so gradual yeah I'm, uh, there weren't any shots of it, it was all pov from yeah. the yeah. its eyes but i think the sound is what really kind of gave it away in the yeah. early bits and the, but then later you know like, like, like i said i would have held back the screaming uh of it until you know this like quick reveal and then like uh later on and i can't even remember, even remember what scene it was that was so shocking because I think it does scream in the hallway once maybe, but it's really a scream later when it breaks in through the window. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I, in my mind, I was like, wait, 
when was that moment? Did I just like mix the moments together in my mind, you know, after 20 years or. I, I, I was going to say, I mean, like it was a very long time ago. It's okay for that to be kind of hazy. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't expect the first look that we got um, of the unnameable to be of its mighty white horse legs. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was cool. Yeah, meaty hoofs. Very much. I, I don't know. I don't know if I had a mental picture in my mind of it at this point. Uh, but I definitely, I was, I wasn't thinking hooves for some reason. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it's um, hard to kind of. To kind of pigeonhole, I guess, in the abstract, just from the title, what a creature called the unnameable might look like. So, yeah, I, I can see how that could have been problematic for you. But uh, Carter and Howard kind of arrive on the scene kind of in synchronicity with all this stuff happening. <laughs> well, Wendy and Bruce are kind of being stalked upstairs by the monster. Yeah, Tanya and uh, Tanya and Howard kind of break away into a kind of like an almost couple. It's, it's kind of seedy deadlier that she quite fancies him. Because she, 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 descri- she, she describes him as completely cute. Oh yeah, okay. Um, and I, I know she earlier on. I, I certainly noticed she was throwing him some kind of foot of glances. But I, his eyes are pretty much solely on Wendy, and they have that weird little moment where she stops him and asks him, "Why is it that guys like Wendy? Is it because she's got lovely tits?" Um, to which he, by the way, in a, in a moment of sheer honesty, says, "Yes, yes, it is that." <laughs> The the casting was was interesting. I I kept thinking because the director was French that somehow there were because you know she's like a was it Wendy or Tanya the Tanya the, she's like she was brought up in Switzerland and France and r- the UK right and her dad's some kind of ambassador right and then earlier on in the very beginning when the priest comes to like you know say the after the old man dies the other characters with them, one is speaking proper English and one sounds like they have like a French accent as well, as well. Right. So I, I, it made me wonder like if this was shot someplace oh, like, uh, in, a, in another country or something. Oh, okay. Like that Beyond Reanimator thing where you've got Jeffrey Combs and a couple of other kind of Americans and then everyone else is Spanish. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I shot in California, by the way. I, I checked. Okay, so <laughs> may, maybe he just knew them and he, like, oh, these are my friends. I want, I want them to be in it or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah potentially intercontinental nepotism. Yeah, and like, why does she need to be a foreign, stu- you know, foreign exchange student or whatever she was, or from someplace else? Just, yeah. just for the character, just, just was like, okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, well, well, kind of everyone is kind of trying to figure out and get to the bottom of slash get to safety while upstairs. Uh, this is the point where, and we did talk about it, where everybody else is upstairs kind of in the thick of the action. And uh, Randolph is doing a lot of expositional book reading. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Very calmly. I mean, <laughs> like, like he, has, he has no care in the world. He's just like, oh, man, this book is so beautiful like, and every dusty. Every <laughs> someone yeah. runs past him screaming and he yeah. barely lifts his face from the book to... To even address it, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I like I, I find that to be uh, kind of interesting and kind of weird, and progressively more interesting and weird as it goes on. But um, at this point, I think that it's um, Tanya and Howard find Joel's upside down decapitated corpse. That's right. See when this happened, like I had got up to get a drink, and I was sitting back down as they discovered the body. So I was looking at my laptop screen from a funny angle where the lighting was like a little bit funny and I didn't twig immediately that the corpse was upside down. Okay. 
I just saw the big gaping wound on the shirt, and I was like, oh, they found Joel's corpse, and for some reason, his penis is missing. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I sat down and readjusted my perspective, and I was like, oh, he's upside down. It's his head. <laughs> that would have been good. They probably sh- might have, should have gone with that choice. <laughs> but yeah, in terms, of, in terms of just like completely misreading something in a split second, I was like, oh, I see. I see what's happened here. Randall uh, Carter, sorry, is also learns the news of Joel's death at this point, and again compl- treats it with complete impassivity. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, again, this man is engrossed. He's he's actually it's not just books by this point. He's found the Necronomicon. Yeah, and he's he's more excited about that than anything else in the whole movie. He didn't show register any any type of excitement or worry until he finds the Necronomicon, and that is like what he you know he he wants or whatever mm-hmm. yeah uh, he's, he's he's um uh, he's, he's like he's like pretty like not even necessarily stoic but just incredibly straight-faced pretty much up to that moment isn't he mm-hmm. and do you don't think though that everything he says and does and every line he delivers it delivers with like almost an incredible amount of kind of camp flourish yeah like he's he's amused to hear his own words <laughs> his, his own thoughts about whatever it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely um we do get a wee flashback at this point um, as we're kind of digging through and get a little bit more of a history of uh, old Joshua Winthrop who died in the opening sequence mm-hmm. where we learn that while well, he, uh, in this flashback, he uh, recounts in voiceover how his wife was mauled to death, giving birth to like a devil spawn, basically, and talks about how he's kind of like, uh, he's found a spell to trap the evil within the house, but eventually the dying wood of the house rotting would release her. His plan B, his kind of failsafe was planting multiple trees and enlisting the aid of what he calls the tree spirits to hopefully kind of like intervene when the time comes. Sure. Which was always going to be too late for him because as he correctly says, trees grow slowly. He was kind of hoping would be an insurance for the future. A fortuitous discovery, I would say, but also placing a lot of stock in the magic of trees. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that comes from, uh, like, that's not in the, the story, the sure. tree. The, the trees and the tree in, in the tomb is in the story. But it, okay. it being a device of protecting or keeping the creature in, I don't think that's in. I don't remember that from the story. Okay. Um, and I think like I don't know what year Poltergeist was, but it feels like this is part of that. Um, okay. mm-hmm. Trees breaking into the house, coming alive type trend. <laughs> that, that. I don't know if it was very long lived in horror say, movies, that. but a trend of two, maybe. But that old, that old shop worn cliche, that old chestnut. Well, I mean, like Evil Dead Two, I mean, both Evil yeah. Dead films did it to an extent. You have trees attacking right. people. You have there we go. The see? big tree coming in at the end of Evil Dead Two with a big eye, and I guess you're right. In eighty two or whenever it was, the Portuguese did the big the big tree as well so yeah yeah, i mean there is more than just that for precedent mitch i am pretty sure that there's there's, (laughs) okay okay right (laughs) fuck you guys (laughs) i think i think i think there was some sort of tree intervention in uh, the conjuring 2 as well just as i decide that was Um, significantly after this though mitch yes i'm aware of that andy thank you very much (laughs) um Wendy springs into action and attacks Howard at this point. She uh, kind of returns on the scene. Uh, she, in what is a real leap in the situation, but I guess she's not necessarily thinking straight, blames him for everything that's happened. She's about to kill him, but she has her neck uh, kind of very discreetly snapped by uh, the unnameable. Yeah, that's right. Also, at this Our, point, Tanya's creeping around in, the, like I said, the, the room that is just so thick with cobwebs that it makes me feel a bit sick. There is so, I don't know if you noticed, but there are so many bad rubber spiders. 
<laughs> I missed those. Uh, that, that's just how, terrible. How did uh, Carter get knocked out right then? Oh, how about? Um, presumably, she has like a she has like that little scythe or sickle or whatever it is, the little hand thing to cut wheat with. Uh, I feel like mm-hmm. she yeah. like jumps on him, like maybe hits his head on the ground or something. I well, know. I felt like he was awake on the ground. Then I was like, did she hit him with the end of the little sickle thing and knock him out or something? Yeah. So it was like one of those weird moments. And there's a lot of those moments where it's like, did that action really lead to that result? <laughs> I'm going to go with it. <laughs> I'm just for the sake of, of believing the story. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, go there, but it, you know, it, it kind of cuts quickly or does something to cover up that it doesn't really work. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, I, I, it's, it never really, it never takes you out of it, but you've got to get, you, no. you, because like, yeah, like the sensible thing to assume there would be that it was knocked out on impact with the grind, but you're right. There was like a struggle. Right. Before, like because she's trying to put the kind of like yeah that kind of like hook or blade thing through his face and he's like yeah. resisting so yeah so that can't have been it so you're right yeah it doesn't necessarily uh doesn't doesn't necessarily stand up to scrutiny I don't suppose yeah or maybe he just passed out because he's so like odd you know <laughs> oh yeah I, I mean I suppose that's fair I can I couldn't count on myself to not pass out from shock with some of the stuff that's going on in there to be fair it finally uh, hit him <laughs> um, is there a reason why they, like they can't leave the house at all before this point. I think it's that spell. Yeah. Ah, okay. So like, so, right. so like, so when they get there, the door kind of locks behind them, right? Right, right. Yeah, Which I love. I really love that. Just that that aspect of the story. Yeah, and I like that Carter's able to use the the spells to get himself out of the house, but uh, leave his friend to <laughs> perish, presumably. Uh, I know right. that his plan is to ultimately invoke the tree magic to to bring this all to a close, hopefully without his friend dying in the process. But uh, it's quite a risky, risky thing to attempt. No, he's going into that that crypt or whatever. It's not even a crypt because you know those um, the that type of of tomb for a body is not even. It's they're still above ground, or I guess no, they would be below ground. It's more like but a, no, no, or maybe there are above ground. Yeah, but there wouldn't be like steps leading down, which it almost seems like. But it, it that's another place where it made me feel like there was another space that it was alluding to in my brain. Mm-hmm. In the same way the house architecture of like all the rooms and hallways made it feel like a different space than than what the what what I was thinking of. But then later, or I guess we're almost to the scene where uh they're in the room where um I don't want to jump forward, but where they're in the room where the uh, the unnameable is being kept. Yeah, we're basically there. We're basically there. Okay. Well, you know, there's that hole in the ground with a rope, and then they look out the window. I think at the tomb outside with a tree in it. And in my mind, there was like a tunnel or something that went to the tree or something, or to a, a ca- you know a cave underneath it or something strange. Yeah, I th- I think that um, a lot of the stuff that you see in kind of like flashback and in the books and in kind of like communications in general from joshua i think are not particularly clear but i think that there's definitely some kind of precedent in there for that like um I th- I, yeah I, th- I think that that's right um but yeah uh we like we do we do kind of see the unnameable here as it kind of like attacks uh howard and tanya uh, like while carter's outside kind of trying to do this kind of tree magic yeah. and so it, and i do think it has a great effect i think it's cool looking it's this weird pale kind of goatee long-haired 
thing with these kind of weird vestigial tiny useless little wings like yeah, I mean, I'm loath to say that I can't really think of a word to describe it because I feel like that's the uh, the, the kind of title of the film. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, it's a weird kind of mishmash of various different creatures and creations and wholly bizarre looking thing. Yeah, it was very cool that reveal. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I just remembered the movie so much is because of the character design, you know, the monster design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's super effective. What um, what did kind of make me laugh here was um, that Howard, for the most part, try as he might to fight the unnameable, just like cannot land a blow. Mm. <laughs> like it like it attacks Howard and Tanya. I mean, I think he eventually manages to like rip some skin off its face. That does happen, Mitch. You're right, but the reason he's able to do that at all is that Tanya kind of runs to his defense with what is really the hero of the film, a torch. <laughs> and uh, she like smacks the unnameable in the arm and like breaks its arm with this big kind of mag light. Yeah, th- yeah, this is kind of what I was gonna say. Cause I mean, like, cause it lands a blow on Howard, then Tanya intervenes and like breaks its wrist or its arm, and then Howard's like, "Now's my chance," and goes in again and just gets the smack put down on him again. <laughs> yeah, he's so p- pitiful. I mean, it's hilarious. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, it's. And I love the fact that it's a flashlight. That flashlight is kind of like a self-defense weapon for some some people. Yeah. That type of mag light is kind of like a known thing to keep in your truck if That's you right, have to yeah. get in a fight. Just keep it, keep it in the door panel in your car, just in that little in that little ducket next to your feet while you're driving. Yeah, exactly. But and then you know, but then when her uh, the creature's uh, arm gets broken, it's she's like you know whimpers about it. And that's one thing I do love about the creature in general. While it is horrific, you can tell that there's just all this other stuff going on inside its brain. It's it's a trapped in its own self, it seems like, its own monstrosity. It doesn't really want to be what it is, but it is. And mm-hmm. yeah, they don't really go into how the girl, if the girl was, the daughter was like transformed into this creature or was always like yeah. it. They didn't really say there's also that thing as well about uh, you're talking about being doesn't want to be this creature doesn't want this this i guess this life in this hideous form but also to be trapped for eternity in a house that you physically cannot leave because you're held there by magic like it's harrowing yeah and well and the fact that she's sat there in front of a window for so long that her image <laughs> radiation whatever ended up in the gla- glass pane uh which is you know so sad really just watching life go by outside the window mm-hmm. yeah it's a, like it's, it's it's quite it's quite a good bit of mythology in general i think it's quite cool mm-hmm. but yeah the trees work their magic at this point or tree singular at least enough at least for um our survivors howard and tanya to escape at which point they get kind of carried by a hand coming out of the ground that is randolph who has been a carter who's been underground they pull him out, and he's like, kind of being like, there's like skeleton hands trying to drag him back underground. Yeah, but little little bitty skeleton yeah, hands. Like, that's what was so weird. And that's the thing. He popped up in such a weird spot again. That's what made my mind feel like there were these underground caverns. Yeah, yeah, in definitely. that area, which you know, other Lovecraft stories have underground caverns like the rats in the walls and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, because that that checks because that checks out because they're like fifty yards out from the house before that happens. Yeah. What I think is funny in this moment is that, like, they pull Randolph out of the uh, Carter out of the ground. Mm-hmm. 
and what's happened under what I, I like what's happened down there is obviously like horrifying and we know like nothing about it and they they save him and he's basically like it was horrific down there and they're like oh thank god you're okay he's like no seriously and he seems like genuinely like really kind of like scarred and traumatized and he's kind of just like let's go home yeah he's got <laughs> he's got mad quips when he comes out of that hole like he he says something like oh that was hell down there and then he says something else kind of jokey and then they just take off and that's the end <laughs> yeah that's crazy i did quite like the fact that there's no kind of like Howard and Tanya went on to become a couple and then they got married type thing. I was very, like, I, like, I like the fact that they just kind of like stumble from the wreckage and the film just ends. Yeah, I, they were never going to get together, even if that had, you know, not happened. But, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, when he looks at her, you can tell there's just nothing. Like, he does not see her as another, you know, someone that's sexually attractive at all. She's, she's no Wendy in his estimation, I don't yeah. think. But no. Yeah, her tits are nothing compared to Wendy's. Because... Yeah. And then Carter cares nothing but besides the Necronomicon, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe there's no epilogue uh, because it would be really depressing. Yeah, yeah, it would just be really boring. They all go off and don't care about anything or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> They're all affected horribly by the things that they've seen. But yeah, with that, we're kind of out on the unnameable Andy. Yeah. How'd this work for you in a first watch? Do you know what? I quite liked it, actually. Like, I, it, it brought to mind things like uh, Hell Night for me, like where it's a bunch of people, a bunch of kind of college people that find themselves in a house that isn't theirs with this kind of creature in the walls thing ostensibly and yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of Hell Knight so yeah this kind of what this kind of worked for me and I found myself really drawn to Carter as a character because his complete nonchalance in the face of potential death just <laughs> made me really happy yeah I, I quite I, I quite like this I, it's not going to be for everyone I don't think at all I don't think that's unfair to say but um it's kind of for me yeah I am uh I kind of I came out of it thinking that it was like pretty good and like my first viewing of this like concluded maybe about 40 minutes before we started recording um and i feel like i can feel myself warming up to it the longer we've been talking about it well uh, if you think about it for 20 something years you really like <laughs> it <laughs> yeah i'm looking forward to revisiting this on my 60th birthday and concluding that it's the best film i've ever seen <laughs> but um yeah like chad this is a really good this is, this was a really cool pick it's again it's just and we've had a few of these lately it's just one of those things that i would never have dug out and watched on my own or, or kind of, of my own volition and i'm really glad that i've had the chance to and it was really nice talking about it um i really do we know anything about uh chad you first do you know anything about because uh, uh, andy you mentioned that you you just kind of came across it tonight as well have you seen the sequel chad i haven't i haven't I think I think I will have to watch it just now, just because when you guys brought it up earlier, I'm like, well, I have to watch that. I think I'm going to watch it once we finish this conversation. But <laughs> going to go straight into it. I think. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a few years later. It landed in 1993. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How do you even start this story again? The tree didn't kill it, or I don't know. <laughs> it's um, it's called uh, the statement of Rand. It's called the unnameable to the statement of Randolph Carter. Ooh. Oh, he's double downing on the thing about changing the name from Carter to Randolph Carter. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, yeah, this was uh, 1992 director video in the UK. I was the same director again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if it's more like the actual story, uh, the statement of Randolph Carter, and not the nameable. Mitch. Because, you know, that that's like two different uh, stories. Mitch, mm -hmm. whatever yeah. you're looking at there, does it have a synopsis? 
It's it's uh just, all it says is that uh, he's back as Carter again. Right. And we have uh, John Reese Davies play uh, is here as Professor <laughs> Warren. <laughs> yes. And um and David Warner plays uh, oh, the wow. Dean of the University. Oh fuck! Okay, um, you got some heavy hitters this time. Yeah. Um. But yeah. Uh, so in terms of like accessibility and stuff like that, I am not sure. But that is out there. And yeah, it sounds kind of interesting. I think that having a Having that that much of the kind of the kind of big hitters of the original come back with some uh, some kind of real names in there sounds kind of curious. Yeah, yeah. But I'm uh, gonna watch it. But yeah, I think I think I, th- I don't I think we're all gonna watch it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to now. I have to complete the you know the story. Yeah, uh, I mean, like my like my compulsion to finish the story when we start doing things with like this is um, one of the reasons why we've now done episodes on every entry in the Anaconda series. Oh wow! Yeah, um, but Chad, great pick, gotta say. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, good... thanks. Like, yeah, I was, I was a little bit worried about it because I hadn't seen it in so long, and it, it just stuck with me. So I knew there was something there, and like those other ideas, which I thought were like movies that had way more funnier parts or you know more things to kind of uh, dissect and stuff. But uh, but yeah, it was cool. I was glad I could uh, share it with you guys. Yeah, yeah I think excellent. Uh, I think that going for the kind of road less traveled on this one kind of worked in your favor, I would say. Um, this was a cool one. But Chad, it's a busy time for you at the moment as well for um, a couple of different reasons. Um, and we'll kind of get into all of them. But uh, first up, let's talk Dementor. So on the day that we're recording this, this is uh, this is out in the world as of today. So congratulations first on that. Yeah. Um, and also, thank having you. seen it, thank you for that also. Um, congratulations on uh the film because i um, i thought it was great yeah me too thank I, you yeah. I, I thought it was excellent yeah amazing do you want to tell us a little bit about it so it's it's out in the u.s at the moment right uh yes it is on uh video on demand um so like itunes amazon youtube and you know all the different places and different cable networks for vod um but yeah it's it's like this story about um this woman who's compelled she's like a drifter and she's compelled to help people and uh, she gets a job in a home for uh, people with uh, special needs. But the problem is uh, every place she goes to, uh, the devil show up and they attach themselves to the person she cares about the most. Mm-hmm. And so the story is about her trying to figure out how to stop the devils. So it's a very uplifting movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, feels but, good I mean, I, the concept of it really came before I even had that log line. Um, it was that my sister, she's older than me and she has Down syndrome. And uh, even back in film and school, in film. And, yeah. and she's in the film. Yeah, she's she's the the, the, the Stephanie, the main yeah. uh, girl with Downs in it. And, uh, and so I wanted to make a movie with her uh, all these years. I just never knew what I should do. Sure. And uh, I watched uh, The Tribe a couple years ago at Sundance. And that was like a movie set in a school for the deaf. And it's all in sign language. It's and no subtitles. And it's all they he used uh, non actors. Mm-hmm. And I got really inspired. I was like, Oh man, I could go into my sister's world, and make a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Or I could actually just make a movie first, and because I'd be so interesting. And then I thought, Oh man, but I write horror movies. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what about a horror movie set in that? That I, I, I've never seen that. Like that would be crazy. And the fact that I you know, I put my own sister in yeah. that would be even you know another level of crazy that no one's done yeah so uh so yeah once i got permission to do it um i just said okay i'm, I'm gonna do this this is gonna be you know quite the experience quite different than making jug face uh yeah. which was 
more traditional storytelling and production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing, you know, the cameraman, writer, director, and, you know, and it was really organic, just writing the script, trying to come up with scenes based around the things that my sister would do. Uh, not exactly what I wanted her to do, but what she could do. Sure. And um, so it was, a, it was completely you know, radically different experience. So I, I, I didn't even use storyboards like wow. I did on Jug Face. I was just, I just scrapped them after the first day because I, I was wearing the camera all day long besides at lunch, like the little rig to hold yeah. the camera. And so I would just find the shot and, uh, you know, and figure out what was working with, uh, with the, the, the people and what I needed to happen and just figure out where the shot would be. I mean, I mean, so much so that the DP, he ended up being in a lot of shots in the background and we had to like digitally paint him out. Oh, really? Because <laughs> he never knew where I was going to set up. Like, yeah. I was just floating over the place and I'd be like, okay, let's go. And we'd start shooting, you know, yeah. running the scene. So it was, a, it was a really cool experience. And, uh, you know, I'm mm-hmm. very thankful that it's, uh, people are going to get to see it. Yeah. Um, I, 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 it's, I, I would certainly agree that it's, it's not like anything I've seen before. And I think that it's kind of like, it does it like, it does a lot with very little, I think. And, um, everything about it kind of comes together. I was like, and I said to you kind of like when we were messaging to arrange this, I mean like, uh, everything about the way this unfolds and escalates may be deeply uncomfortable. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, me too. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's 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 um it's a really remarkable thing. I'm really looking forward to um like hearing what people like think about it now it's out in the world, and hopefully there'll be some uh, some platform for UK audiences to check it out as well at some point. Yeah, eventually, I'm sure I'm sure there will be. Uh, yeah. yeah, but yeah, it was strange. I didn't really even when I was editing, I was thinking, man, I've never seen this movie, and like it was really exciting, but I was so desensitized to everything about it. Yeah, yeah. and and Jeff Wedding, the DP, would come over and watch a cut, and he would just start. He would kind of giggle like during moments and shake his head, and and I was I looked at him like what? And he's like he like people are gonna hate you, man. People are gonna hate you. <laughs> you <know>? Really? <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, because of how how intense it was. But I just couldn't feel it because I'm just too close to it. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, we showed it. It premiered at the Nashville Film Festival, and the sound was was broken in the theater, so oh. I didn't have surround sound going on. I just had like center channel and maybe right or left. And so it still was played well and was intense, but it wasn't nearly as intense. The next screening I went to, the Knoxville Horror uh, Film Festival, Festival in Tennessee, really great festival, but like it's like all in this one room, at least this day was. And and I learned very quickly that this is not a movie that people want to like hang out and be drinking beers and have a good time and watch. Yeah, because sure. that, that that's what was happening. They were watching these movies they could enjoy the horror. It was distant, you know, it was fun. And then and then my movie came on and just wrecked the place. <laughs> I mean, yeah, people I... were were leaving, getting up, slamming their chairs. I mean, you could just, the tension was, and it was so loud. And I, that was the first time I heard in the theater being so loud. And people, it just was too much for them because they didn't know even even the funny parts they wouldn't laugh at because they didn't they didn't know how to take any of the images uh-huh. of the, yeah. these people with disabilities. I mean, and I then, mean, yeah, and, like I, I, I can see that. Like yeah, I can see yeah, people and, not knowing how to take it. And 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 of course, I knew it was going to trigger people to a certain degree. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure, uh, sure. You know, obviously, um, but I just didn't know um, it would be it, it. Things decisions I made really played into it as well. Uh, the fact that I. Um, only use really one actress, you know, like the lead Katie. Yeah. 
and then Larry Fessenden is an actor, and then the, the guy at the meat uh, uh, processor is a actor, but everyone else is not actors. Sure. And so what happens is you realize that there are these vulnerable people in these scenes, but you also realize on like a subconscious, not even subconscious, but conscious level that the main character is an actor sure. and she shouldn't be there. So the dread you get just from her presence it's just really powerful and kind of carries you through the movie, mm-hmm. not to mention everything else that's in it. So. Yeah, yeah, and 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 yeah, just just and just to round off. So, like for our, our American listeners, that's available now yeah. on VOD. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Today, um, and also, uh, Chad, your uh, your 2013 film uh, Jugface now available in the Auto Player. So, congratulations for that as well. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, I'm a huge fan of Arrow. So uh, the, when they they called up and said, hey. We're going to be re- uh, releasing this. Uh, will you do some extra uh, material for it? I said, of course, like super excited uh, to have everybody kind of re-exposed to it again with some new material with it. Also, I mean, like, it's great that like, because obviously like the auto player being a new thing and it being this kind of uh, this platform that has a lot of eyes on it right now, really exciting opportunity just for the film to kind of have that second life and find that second audience. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, exactly. I mean, I was just... I was just thrilled to kind of be associated with Arrow to begin with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, did you watch any of the extras? Yeah, I, I did. Um, weirdly, though, I, I think, I don't actually think Jugface is on the UK Arrow player. Oh, weird. I, oh, it's just, so it's just the extras. Well, yeah, I, I, that is the weird part about it, because as I said to yeah. you, Arrow, like, earlier on today, I settled down to watch Jugface and I was scrolling through the Arrow player for ages and I went up messaging Lauren, Ashley Carter, and saying, um, where the hell is the film? Like, I've watched your interview with Rob from Celluloid Screams and I've seen that kind of stuff, but where's the film? And she, I, I think she said that it was only on the American one, so I had to go and dig out the UK DVD, The Pit, uh, right. of course. The Pit, yeah. I, I think that's that's the reason, is that yeah. the UK rights are owned by the people that put out The Pit. Mm-hmm. Ah, and okay. The, and the Jugface rights were, were acquired from uh, Gravitas, sure. who owns the American rights right now. But, and, uh, um, and that that's why, yeah. yeah. I see. Okay. Today I Makes did sense. watch Jogface and Dementor back to back, and like I said to you earlier as well, this uh, this this was not a cheery afternoon's viewing. <laughs> yeah. This was not a laugh riot. He he was Jugface and Dementor back to back, and he turned out mostly fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chad, it has been great talking to you uh, tonight. Where can people get you on uh, social media if they want to keep up with what you're up to? Uh, yeah, I'm at Chad or Chad C. Kinkle. I think that's my, it's like funny. I always forget like what the hell my name is on Twitter or whatever. Um, let me make sure it is. Yeah. Chad C. Kinkle at Chad C. Kinkle. That's, that's you can find me at Chad Crawford Kinkle or on Facebook or Twitter. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where I lurk around. Great. Chad, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, man, thank yeah. you. This has been great. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a joy. So a really interesting choice from Chad there. I'm very curious to know what the chuds at large think of this one. Yeah, me too. I, I, I think I think it'll be like anything that we do like this from this kind of time period. I think it's going to be a kind of divisive one. There's going to be people out there who are absolutely going to love this. Uh, and then there's going to be people that can't fucking stand it. People like Mitch Bain. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, that's, not, that's not fair. No, that's um, not fair. 
But a huge thank you to uh, Chad Kinkle, director of Jugface and Dementor, for joining us for that one. Lovely yeah. guy. Yeah, and check out Dementor if you get a chance. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, American uh, listeners, you can get on that right away. Hopefully, there'll be some news for UK guys soon enough as well. Yeah. For now, though, we're done. Again, done. Boom. Yeah, rolls around quick. We're back in your feeds, of course, on Monday. We will have all the usual stuff for you there. We'll be talking about what we've been watching. We'll be checking in on your Nature's Gone Wild side quest. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, better watch something there. Eh? Better get something watched, yep. Uh, we're playing Mitch's Pitches, taking a look at your feedback, letting you know all you need to know about next week's, I think, the film. Like, we're excited about the guest choice. I'm sure you will be too. You're going to love the film pick. <laughs> yeah, I think, you'll, I think you'll be happy with that. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good one. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, loads of ways to do that, of course. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet Strong Violent PC. You can email stronglanguagevalentscenes at gmail.com and you can get in on the conversation on our Facebook group, The Chud Locker. And... Let's not forget, we've got a Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Strong Language Violence Scenes. That's what you're looking for. Go on, take a little look. And massive thanks to everyone again who have upped their pledges. And huge thanks also to everyone who has bought one of our enamel pins. We've been seeing some stuff on Twitter. They've started dropping through people's doors. I've actually got a couple that I now need to go and post for people who kind of got in. After, after the first wave the, yeah, yeah. The, the initial tranche had gone out mm-hmm. but uh, yeah that's great and there's still some more of those check out the social media because we're banging that drum pretty hard at the moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> meantime though we are back on Monday with another mini so join us then if you can in the meantime don't forget it's better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds goodbye bye guys You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.